Welcome to the Talking Poem Podcast. I'm your host, Charlie Green. On each episode, I invite a guest to bring in any poem they'd like to talk about for any reason. We'll talk about what delights us, what excites us, maybe what frustrates us, and we'll see how the poem and the conversation turn. Afterward, we'll have a little bit of silliness because I can't help myself. On today's episode, I'm so happy to have on Rebecca Morgan Frank. Morgan is the author of four books of poetry, including 2021's Oh, You Robot Saints, which the New York Times listed as new and notable poetry for that year. She's also the co-founder and editor-in-chief of the fabulous online journal Memorius. And to my great pleasure, she's currently a visiting assistant professor here at Cornell. Morgan, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Charlie. Really looking forward to the conversation. Good. Yes, me too. I'm looking forward to the game because you've said you're nervous about it. So you've brought in Louise Gluck's poem, Snowdrops, from her 92 collection, The Wild Iris, I, in part because she passed away a few weeks ago. And I'm just curious, before we get to the poem, to hear you talk a little bit about your relationship with her poems. She's a very important poet to me, and uh, she has f- for many people. And, and in fact, I really struggled with um, deciding which poem to bring. As you know, I kept putting it off. And and then I remembered that this was the first poem, Snowdrops was the first poem by her I encountered. A fellow MFA student, Gwen Spalding Barkley at Emerson, brought this in. It was one of those things where everybody brought a poem in. And I remember it. I can picture the hand now and sort of the transformative feeling of seeing it out in the wild before I even got to the full collection, The Wild Iris. So this was sort of my gateway drug to Louise Gluck, I guess you should say. And that seemed like maybe it would be a good place to start the conversation for a poet whose work I deeply love and who's really shaped for me maybe what could be possible in the lyric. Oh, wow. That's great. I first encountered her, I'll just say, in high school, not because I read her, but because a Barnes & Noble opened in Little Rock. There were good used and independent bookstores, but I was not really aware of them at the time. And so up near the front where they have like stacks of remaindered books. They had remaindered copies of the Wild Iris in hardcover for like four or five bucks. And so I bought it and then proceeded like most books I bought then not to read it for years and then eventually read it and have taught the Wild Iris a couple of times and, and just it find, find her extraordinary and I'm blown away every time. I'm just sort of sidebar amazed of, of uh, Barnes & Noble at that time, carrying that versus just Rumi and Jewel, which well, is usually what you would find on the shelves at that time. Exactly. Well, they had this thing, and I don't know if they still do it. I haven't been in a Barnes & Noble in a long time, but they would have stacks of like very cheap copies of works of literature that were long past copyright date. And then they would have remaindered copies of like tons of Stephen King and Amy Tan. And I think of her because they actually, Stephen King and Amy Tan and some other writers have a band called The Remainders. Apparently, there were remaindered copies of The Wild Iris. And so to see the stack of them, for me, she was a figure before she was a poet, basically. Well, let's go ahead and get to the poem. I'll ask you to read Snowdrops aloud, and then we'll talk. Snowdrops. Do you know what I was, how I lived? You know what despair is then. Winter should have meaning for you. I did not expect to survive earth suppressing me. I didn't expect to waken again, to feel in damp earth my body, able to respond again, remembering after so long how to open again in the cold light of earliest spring. Afraid, yes, but among you again, crying yes, risk joy in the raw wind of the new world. 
I love that poem. That poem is so fantastic. You've already said that this was the first poem of hers that you remembered. You remembered reading, and you said that she kind of opened up what a what a poem could be for you, or what a lyric could be. And I'm curious what here does that for you. I think, you know, as I look back, you know, 20 years later, um, years of teaching poetry and, and all the things that she gives permission to that I especially feel like in the early aughts where there was a ton of, you know, time of irony mm-hmm. um, or just discursive models, this, this sort of simplicity of the language plus the largesse, right, of, of crying yes, risk joy. You know, that's that's not a line I would ever bring into workshop, no. right? Um, you know, and, and I feel like there's a, st- a moment after moment of things that we might be told to be wary of, right, that, you know, using a semicolon in the poem or, you know, <laughs> thinking of, you know, the, the adjective-noun combination that are, you know, damp earth, earliest spring. It's all of these components that feel pared down and also expansive. And there's something magical about why something so sparse mm-hmm. works. Yeah. It's always all her poems, and this one especially, it's so compressed. And it feels like, and I say this to my students, I'm always most impressed by art that creates the most emotional response with the least. And I always have to say that doesn't mean, you know, war and peace and infinite jest are lesser, but I'm always hit hardest by a poem like this. And I want it's so much of the sincerity of it. It's it's not easily earned. It's not like feel joy. It's risk joy. And 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 just even a small choice like risk joy, I think undermines or, or curtails any sort of sentimentality that would be part of it in other in a, another kind of poem like this, if that makes any sense. Well, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. You know, she, she talks about that, that this book and, you know, ones that followed after that were she's the word whole, right? Mm-hmm. And and so it's funny to me that I encountered this in this small parsed down version when really so much of it even more powerful in the in the scope of the wild iris, right? In the mm-hmm. in the sequence of these sparse flower poems, you know, the the first one being at the end of my suffering there was a door. Mm-hmm. And this this poem feels so so much in conversation with those others and yet in the wild <laughs> It, uh, it, it it holds its own. It's interesting among the wild iris because so much of that book has a lot of the characteristics of this poem being so sparse, having something very stark and direct in the voice that it opens with something like, you know what despair is, this kind of directive statement, which again, like you said, it's the sort of thing I don't think I would risk in a poem or I think I would have felt discouraged from risking in a poem to say directly, you know what despair is. But part of it, I think, is just choosing what in so many other hands would be a corny choice to just have flowers speaking everything and that it gives her the power and the opportunity to have these really stark kind of godlike voices. I love that in in this poem and and in the whole collection. You know, you have you have the human speaker, you have the flower speaker, Mm -hmm. and then you have this other entity. And so I brought in this quote because I love this, where uh, in an interview with Grace Cavallari, you know, she asked like, oh, people think that other speaker is God. And Gluck responds, yeah, they do, don't they? (laughs) Well, I don't. It's shorthand for whatever is not included in the human and the natural, something left out. Oh, um, that's great. And, and I love that. And then later she also says, it, it starts to kind of sound like my mother. 
<laughs> after a while too. So, um, but but I think that's one of the things that I find really interesting about the pared down poem, which, you know, as a poet, you, you can be frustrated or embraced as how much people fill in the blanks or take this on as, mm-hmm. as a religious book or as, yeah. as a book of, of healing out of trauma. You know, there's so many different readings that become possible, I think, which is the love of this book in a way that there's a resonance at many levels. Mm-hmm. Well, it's so funny that because I had read somewhere that one of the useful ways of thinking about the poems in this book is that what if she used the Christian mythology in the most sort of sideways way without it sort of being centered in the book. So it it has a a register, a voice that I think of in terms of, you know, sort of godlike oratory and is essentially referencing part of the Christian mythology. The It has the sort of, why hast thou forsaken me? You must know what despair is. I did not expect to survive. It's it's almost as if that moment is there. And then the raw wind of the new world, I think it's, it's difficult for me not to think of the New Testament as this sort of this after Christ, this is the new world. And so it's there, but it's not central to the poems in the way that I think we tend to think of with poems that allude to religion a lot. We're locked into the earth, right? Because <laughs> because these are flowers speaking, and yeah. and the elements, and and um, what does it mean? I think kind of puts into question. I was thinking, you know, a bookmark like these kind of lines from the the not God poems, you know, <laughs> called retreating wind. <laughs> When I made you, I loved you. Now I pity you, right? So it's it's made into the wind in some sense who's speaking, even though we're getting that spoken down to, right? You know, oh, yes. I, I pity you, right? Yeah, there is this kind of condescending voice in so many of the poems. And part of what I like about it is it's impossible for me not to read in a way as speaking to herself, finding a, a way to, not necessarily to Louise Gluck, but to find, to speak to a sort of stand-in for the self as, a, as this kind of judgment. So what what if we had the judgment of a god, but in some other kind of realm, the, the kind of self-judgment that I think people sometimes feel. It's as if this poem voices it back to the self. Yeah, whatever those voices are. That's why I love that when I discovered that in the interviewer saying it starts to sound like my mother. Like it doesn't matter who 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 those voices are in mm-hmm. our head or where they come come from. Yeah. Why or we're thinking what what could I have been? What can I be? Yeah. How am I a disappointment? You know, <laughs> what is it to be, right? Yeah, and how do how do we sort of understand how to be? The the you know what despair is, winter should have meaning for you. This is our your way of learning to understand the world through this pattern, the pattern of, of winter into spring, through despair into at least the risk of hope, if not always hope. Well, I think that's why it's, I mean, it's so interesting to have the f- flowers as the beings because they're continually lacking knowledge and then discovering it through experience. Yes. Right? And then you don't know until <laughs> until you're reborn in the spring as a as a snowdrop, right? What that is to open again. You did, you didn't know it was possible. So that sort of I don't know, I, I find that really interesting. The lack of knowledge and then sentience. Right? Yeah. Well it's it's the difference between knowledge and feeling in a way that it's that we make the same mistakes over and over again. And, you know, despite knowing, oh, I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't interact in that way with people. And then that knowledge not translating into an actual change in behavior, <laughs> that it's, it's, it's a very human kind of, of cycle as well. This kind of, oh, I should learn from this experience and then often don't learn. And, and yet 
with the flower, at least a perennial, <laughs> depends on the flower, <laughs> yeah. the, the chance comes again. But and then the other cycle in the book, and just, you know, not to dig into that, but is the, the morning and evening prayer, mm-hmm. right? This con- continual reconnection, restarting over, uh, you know, it, it's also, we move through the seasons and we also move through that pattern of of a, a certain kind of calling out, I guess I would say. Yeah, I like the idea of calling out. Uh, I mean, we it is a poem with one voice. There was, I, I almost don't want to bring this up. There was a, a review of Louise Gluck's poems, 1962 to 2012, that got some notoriety by Michael Robbins. The thing that got the most notoriety was the phrase that she was a major poet with a minor range. I had never read the review until a couple of weeks ago prepping for this. And it's really a frustrating review because he doesn't seem to understand lyric poems as addresses to the self. And one of the things that I find so powerful about her poems is the intimacy of that overhearing and the intensity of the kind of judgment that's in them. Because I find that recognizable and I find that isn't necessarily present in a lot of lyric poems. I don't feel like the way that she captures that voice is present in a lot of lyric poems. And that's one of the things that I appreciate about her is capturing something of that tone. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting that you bring up critical reception because I just with you know, rolling my eyes over here silently <laughs> of like, oh, yeah, I can, you know, I can think of two other male critics who I could quote some pretty, you know, vicious digs. And I, I think that's interesting, too. I mean, par for the course of of that level of notoriety, although all of those are pre-Nobel and they're sort of throughout the career, you know, what it, what it is to be a, a woman making these claims. And there's a going into the self, but there's also a, such precision and, mm-hmm. and power. And then, then uh, well, I, I find it interesting that that, that, yeah. that sort of um, constant refrain, it's, it's, it's sort of similar comments. Yeah. It's it's very frustrating because I think that I, I mean some of it's obviously that she's uh, a female writer. Some of it is that probably that the poems are so intimate that I think for some readers they male readers they feel domestic in a way. But I think that that misses what they're doing, which is getting at a very kind. They're getting so precisely at a kind of individual intimacy with the with this kind of voice and then even the the crying rest yes risk joy just to bring it back to this poem there's this pressure the speaker has to really get this out to actually say this in a way to whoever the interlocutor is because it's not crying yes comma risk joy it's crying yes risk joy just in one line with no punctuation in that tiny stanza before the final single line stanza in the raw wind of the new world, whereas everything else is so, you mentioned the semicolon, it's so precisely written and so precisely grammarly, for lack of a better word, so precisely punctuated. And then we get crying, yes, risk, joy with Mm -hmm. no pause, no comma. And for me, it it feels like this kind of eking out of of that desire to, to actually risk that kind of joy. Absolutely. I mean, you know, much has been said, including by the poet um, about her attention to syntax, right, through mm-hmm. throughout her work. And, and but this, you know, we start with a question. We have this sort of caesura, right, of sorts through this, this um, broken up. And then there in the second stanza, I didn't expect, sort of just unfolds and unfolds and unfolds and then breaks into that moment. 
And I think to me, that's just a testament of the of the skill that's in that. I think a sparseness that can be, you know, assumed to be a simplicity. But when you look at how the the line breaks, the stanzaic breaks create the movement, right? This this hesitations of discovery before we break into that line. And interesting to think, you know, as you said that, like, you know, how different it would have been if it ended ended there. But it keeps going, right? It it reminds us of where we are. I wrote this in my notes. She's she's just one of my favorite writers of line breaks because I the, she uses them. And part of it, I think, is that, that the poems are so compressed and so compact and concise, but that there's they generate so much tension and they help create the voice. I didn't expect to waken again, to feel, and you feel the hesitation mm-hmm. on the expect, the intensity of to feel. It all gets sort of brought out through those breaks. And then, like you say, crying, yes, risk, joy. In so many alternate versions of this poem, it could have ended there. But in the raw wind of the new world and raw and new being such essential choices and so surprising in the way that they complicate everything. There's nothing easy about this joy, which is, I think, one of the things I respect so much about her work is that everything, every emotion is earned. The wind is raw. So whatever we can earn joy-wise will be difficult. And the world is new. There is possibility. It's not the same old world. So there is change in the cycle. But, you know, you're going to have to risk it. (laughs) Uh You're not going to be able to, it's not just going to just bloom. Well, in a way, the snowdrop blooms. But let me me walk back everything I just, (laughs) very carefully. The, you know, if you think of the poem as breath and embodying that sense of suspense on each of those lines and the way that works with the music of the poem, even all the sounds, right? The W's, what was, how, what, winter, wake and wind world, mm-hmm. right? That's, there's the sounds that are moving us along and, and yet those line breaks suspending us as if we're struggling our way through, right? As, as you say, the form embodies it. I think it wouldn't be the same poem. You mentioned, you know, talking about what we do with students. One of my favorite things I like to do with introductory students is give them a poem where I've taken out all the line and stanza breaks and mm-hmm. see what they do. And you, you, it really can um, show you how in a poem like this, how much work that is yeah. doing, I think, in this particular poem, those, those breaks. You know, it's funny. I, I do the same thing. I wonder how many people do that when they teach. I So I basically, this takes us away from this poem, but I, I do that with a poem where this exercise was done with me when I was a student. So I've basically stolen what a teacher did years ago. But it's the James Wright poem, St. Judas, which is a sonnet. And the story goes that he sent it to Robert Bly as prose and that Robert Bly said, oh, this is incredible. I love it. It's amazing. And then when James Wright said, well, it's actually a sonnet, Bly was angry. But I always bring in that poem and what almost always happens, it begins, when I went out to kill myself, I caught. I think that's the first line. But the students always break it on when I went out to kill or when I went out to kill myself because they want that kind of stark, you know, violence Mm -hmm. of that break. But then when you read it as a sonnet, it reads like this kind of carefully constructed argument that Judas is making, trying to sound, oh, yes, I, I did this without any thought for myself. But the, the sonnet creates this kind of oddly reasonable tone. And here there's the chaos of the line breaks. And speaking of things that the poem doing things that I feel like I, I would even tell students not to do, the opening line being the longest line 
in the poem is just such an unusual choice. I can't think of many poems that do that deliberately that don't have a, a form or, or that are that are in free verse. It's it's so funny. I think you know we we see this movement towards like um st- a certain kind of standardization. But those some of the poems that I most love. I mean James Wright. Like, I was glad you brought him up in my pantheon. He's up there too in that. Um, and I think it's the same thing. That sort of balance between reason and rigor, and you know breaking into blossom, right? And then also <laughs> Sylvia Plath, right? I mean, yeah. I think such a model of of stanzaic and line movement, like where it's really the poet is really controlling organically in the way that free verse, well, I hate to say should, but, you know, <laughs> like this idea of like, right, this is where the line needs to be mm-hmm. because we're, we're not adhering to some kind of metrical form. Or I, I sometimes wonder how composition on the computer screen pushes that sort of uniformity, right? Because when you think about composing by hand, you can't even always visually, depending on your handwriting, maybe if it's really <laughs> uniform, really have a sense of marker about right. those line lengths. So to me, that's about it really moving with with the breath, the need of the line, the meaning of the point of argument. Yeah. And I think that the, I think you're absolutely right about the typing making a sort of similarity of line sometimes when there's free verse. The, because there's the Robert Frost quote that writing without form is like playing tennis without a net. And then I, I've had this said to me in various ways and I, there should be a source and I don't have a source on it. The idea that, that free verse poetry has to be as carefully formed as formal poetry, that every choice has to be, have it something deliberate and give something to the poem. So like the opening line, do you know what I was, how I lived, you know, that that's the entirety of the line where I feel like it's essential to have the two you knows there because we get the expectation of, oh, you know what I was, how I lived, when instead it's going to turn into, you know, then what, you know what despair is then. And so it has that sort of surprise. It has that feeling of argumentation, not just because it's the question, but we get the entirety of the question in the first line and the start of the, her for her, the speaker's answer. I mean, that's what's so, I mean, the line is so personal in that sense, right? Like mm-hmm. if you if you think about, you know, back to that exercise, right, which is actually often how I read the student poems. I've confessed this to the grad students this week. Sometimes I type them up so I can just feel it and I move them around. Like I'm trying to get inside the poem and see how that poet is moving because it's shaping the argument, mm-hmm. right? And also the voice and vantage. I always like to use the framework like a mind at work, mm-hmm. right? And the mind is working across the line, yeah. right? So so that's where we, you know, we talked about we, we all might break it a different way because our mind is working in a, in a different way, yeah. right? In terms of um, how we how we unfold the meaning. And my students, and I love my students, I'm having a joy this semester, They're, they often have a tendency to want to break lines on some sort of obvious grammatical pause, punctu- piece of punctuation usually. And the more that they are making, over the course of the semester, they've made stranger and stranger breaks, they've taken bigger risks, and they're clearly having so much fun doing it that what you you learn something about your voice and thinking about the tension between a sentence and a line because like and I, I say this to them again and again you don't think in language or you don't think solely or even primarily in language but when we speak we pause we have these hesitations and they're not always where we would have punctuation but they're indicative of our voice they're indicative of our hesitations our thinking our emphasis and yeah again clock is just so 
masterful at that. I don't. Uh, we need a better word than masterful. <laughs> we need to get rid of the word. Well, master. I mean, there's such precision, and and it's also it's a poem is a score, right? It's telling us how to read it. It's this, you know, that's the snowdrops dramatic monologue on mm-hmm. the stage, right? How the how to how to speak. Uh, I mean, I guess I immediately went to her snowdrop as a her, but how to her it. Is there truth snowdrops? You know, I think sometimes poems that we hold dear, there's this question of what does it mean to to crack them open and bring that in, into to a conversation to unveil it. And um, I, I think uh, I've been thinking a lot about the, you know the idea of mystery or talking about that that sort of liminal line between transcendence and total failure, right? And to mm-hmm. me, the the best poets or the best poems often do that, right? But there is that, that risking, that risk, right, yeah. that's embodied. And I'm also thinking about how now when I read this poem, you know, whenever I talk about the wild iris, I, I think I told a, a student to, you know, run to the library and see if they could get the copy before everybody else had gotten it and and that you had to read it in full right and yeah. so now when i read this poem i'll i'll never get back to that original reading of that sort of wondrous of again seeing this in the wild now it's it's i can't undo the larger conversation of the sequence that it's part of that's right. That's, to me, such a, a perfect book. So it's, it's really wonderful to come back and to think of it on, on its own and, and sort of journey into what is, what is that wonder? The wonder is cumulative. Mm-hmm. Well, the thing is, you know, we can't return to it. And it would be great if we could. The closest, though, we can is having the students read it and telling them to read it. I've taught it. The Wild Iris a couple times with first year students. And at first, because they haven't read much poetry, they're kind of baffled by it. And then the more you talk about it and the more you do the sort of piecing together, this is how it's put together. This is what it seems to be doing. (laughs) I get to relive that with them. So. Oh, yeah. And let me clarify. I feel a sense of wonder when I wear the book as a whole, the whole time. But I think coming back to the individual poem, it's like I can't, you know what I mean? It's still, I have the rest of the book filling in around me. It's an enrichment, I yeah. guess. Yeah. I think it's an exciting book to teach because because students know they're in, in the presence of something mm-hmm. different as a book, right? Not every collection has that holistic impact, yeah. right? Where they might be choosing favorite poem, but that's is such an experience across the the collection. It really is. Well, let's let's try out this segue. Let's cry, risk, yes, risk, joy, and move to the silliness and the games of. Oh of no! The show. Oh, am I going to be crying? <laughs> or <laughs> no? Well, you may be crying. La- let's hope you'll be crying, laughing, <laughs> laughing first at our ad break. This week's episode is brought to you by Nissan. Do you remember that there was once a Nissan Stanza? Nissan is back with a whole new line of poetic vehicles, the Cars Poetica. <laughs> Don't worry, <laughs> these these won't guzzle gas. In fact. They're environmentally friendly, like the Nissan Whitman. After all, the body's electric. Chevy has the Volt, but now (laughs) Nissan has the Volta, the car with the world's best turning radius. You will also love Nissan's great new car, the Kermis. The wheels, they go round, they go round and around. The squeal and the blare and the tweedle airbags. The Nissan metaphor will transport you to a whole new world, and the Nissan Sejura can stop on a dime. In Nissan's line of cars, Poetica, yes, this was a challenge to see how many dumb puns I could fit into one. In Nissan's line of Cars Poetica, you'll never
never be bothered by traffic and jam vents. You'll love their couplet holders. These cars come with quad train drives. Instead of rack and pinion steering, these cars have rag and bone shop steering. On top of that, they have impeccable additional insurance coverage. Should you have an accident, they'll send out one of their agents to describe and transcribe the scene. That's right. These are their top people, experts in wreck phrases. Oh, so, <laughs> you've outdone yourself with this week's ad, Charlie. I've been enjoying the ad, but this is, this is next level. Oh, thank you. Don't drive a Toyota Tercet. Nissan hopes you're excited about this collection of cars. I know I am. I am. I am. Uh, Rebecca Morgan Frank, <laughs> are you ready to play a game? I am ready. Okay. In honor of your most recent collection of poems, we are playing a game I'm calling Oh, You Robots Ain't S. I, <laughs> I, I asked an AI text generator to give me a poem in the style of either a particular poet or a particular poem. And for the subject of the poems, I went to a random word generator and said, give me a word. That'll be the subject. And it gave me the word trunk, but I mistyped truck. So I went to an AI generator and I said, write me a poem in the style of X about a truck. Number one, you'll be very happy. Number one is a gimme. You just have to guess the poem or the poet that I asked them to give me a poem, the poem about a truck. Number one. I saw the best truck of my generation, <laughs> monstrous, holding, hauling its heavy load through the midnight streets, mad driver, wild-eyed, dragging the freight of America behind it in the neon lights of the city. Oh, Allen Ginsberg. Yep. You know, which, let me just tell you, Allen Ginsberg came to my high school. Did he really? So, I'm glad I got that one right. The first, first poet I saw in the flesh. Oh, well, there has to be like a good quick anecdote about it. Okay, there is. Hippie school, we're all sitting on the floor. The English teacher had taken him out to the local gay bars in Charlottesville, Virginia, after his reading at UVA and asked him to come into school. He asked this guy, Alec, to play the guitar. And all Ellen Ginsberg did for about 20 minutes, I don't know, was it that long? That's, it felt like forever, yeah. was go, little lamb, little lamb. And it wasn't, you know, until I later encountered Blake that I, I knew and learned more about Ginsberg, <laughs> what he was up to. But, um, you know, I am a bit sorry that he didn't actually read a poem, but it also makes for a pretty good story. Yeah. No, it's bizarre. Just just the thought of him coming to a, to a high school. Good good for your teacher. So you're one for one, which Ooh, okay. already puts you in the top tier of scorers. Number two is a little trickier. Uh -oh. We're looking for a specific poet, in this case, not a poem. I saw a truck double parked in the chaos of the city, a metallic behemoth dwarfing the pedestrians. And the driver perched like a sentinel on his throne as if surveying the urban savanna from his prideful perch. I'm going to skip ahead to the last stanza. Oh, truck, in your journey through the urban flow, you're a poet in motion, a conductor of the show, carving through the streets in this concrete tableau, a piece of the city's drama, a modern day manifesto. One quick hint is that there's, this is not at all like the poet I asked. <laughs> oh, oh, well, there. Um, <laughs> okay, you know, AI, really, this is what... what uh, I, I need another hint. I, I'm having a hot flash. I'm so nervous. I don't, I don't like getting tests wrong, Charlie. Well, no. Give me a good hint. This is, this is, these are designed not to be tests so much as to be completely <laughs> ridiculous. Uh, the AI, AI is testing me. That's true. Think city, because it's very much about trekking a city. Think New York City mid-20th century? I mean... 
There's no way to get this. Nothing uh, in no, All right. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I fold. I, it's Frank O'Hara. I was going to say, but that, that was like mid-20th century New York, Frank O'Hara, but that had no, like, let this be a lesson. Yeah. AI has stripped all the Frank O'Hara out of Frank O'Hara. Exactly. Well, this is the Where's thing. Where's the joie de vivre? I have... No clue. So what I've discovered is with, and this is true of chat GPT and another AI, I can't remember now which one. If you ask it to give you a poem, it will always give you rhyming quatrains, mm. sometimes a sonnet. And if you ask it to give you a free verse poem with no rhymes, it will give you rhymed quatrains. The only exception I've seen is when I asked it to give me a poem about loneliness in the style of Allen Ginsberg, in which it reproduced Howl in its entirety, except it was, I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by loneliness. That was the only change. And so otherwise, like the, wow. the version of, of Howl is, it's in quatrains. Uh, and it, it ends up steering itself toward rhyme by the end. The last stanza rhymes might, flight, night, and fight, which is a very un-Ginsburg, <laughs> un-Ginsburg-y. You know, I've, I've heard some teachers talk about students turning in poems, not here at Cornell, but, you know, elsewhere from this. And I'm just imagining someone turning in. I saw the best <laughs> minds of my generation destroyed by loneliness, you know. Oh. That's great. Did you write this poem yourself? That's you want to really, talk about this? That's really good. All right. I'm, I'm just going to tell okay. you what number three is. It's I, I put in We Real Cool, and it gave me We, the mighty truck, rule these streets so bold. <laughs> okay. Number four, five, and six, which will now be three, four, and five, are gettable. Number four. Because I could not dodge the sturdy truck, oh. it kindly stopped. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Absolutely. And I will say that that this one I did ask for because I could not stop for death. And this one is relatively close because it pulls some words. It pulls eternity. It has the because I could not blank. It kindly stopped. But, oh, it's terrible. It's awful. We trundled down the asphalt lane beneath the ever watchful traffic lights with cargo in tow through sunshine and rain. The world outside, a buzzing hive of sights. Like, it's just so uninteresting. <laughs> do, do you ever read that um, Snodgrass's Decompositions? No. It's uh, interesting uh, recompositions of, of famous poems that, that are sort of fun to teach students, you know, how a poem works. And, mm-hmm. but, but, you know, I just feel like it maybe it would have a, be a new conversation in light of, the, of these AI-generated <laughs> decompositions. Yeah. Well, okay. So you're currently two for three. Number four, I'm, I'll, I'll try to read it in, in its entirety, but you'll probably interrupt me. I have driven the truck that was parked on the driveway in which you were probably saving for Will some purpose. Oh, thank, thank you for the, for the but, you know, that one's been had so many like redos, but I yeah. think the um, I think the truck really wins for, you yeah. know. Yeah. The, the Forgive me. It was so big, so loud and so tempting. <laughs> yeah. Really what it does is it turns. It turns poetry into advertising. Okay, our last one. I'm going to read you the whole thing because this is the least clear other than the the O'Hara and the We Real Cool, We the Mighty Truck. Okay. A truck of monstrous steel, its engines roar, slouches through the city, relentless and strong. In the cacophony of chaos, it does soar, a modern titan in a world gone wrong. The streets, once straight, now twist and bend. The pavement cracked, the lines in disarray, pardon me, the lanes in disarray. The truck, a beast that seems to know no end, carries the weight of a world in decay. Halfway through, do you have a guess on this one? 
I mean, I'm more thinking like, who who would you go to next? But I don't. Okay, we'll go to the last two stanzas, which has, the, which easily has the best line AI has produced. It's tires like prophecy, turning, churning. That's it. That's the only good thing the AI has generated. Yates? It's tire. It is Yates. <laughs> Yes, yes. And what rough beast its hour come at last drives through our city, burdened and vast. Its relentless journey, a vision from the past, a truck, a symbol in a world recast. Are, are you in the pocket of the automobile industry? I, I feel like maybe you are with these truck poems or you're, you're about to make your millions um, doing uh, redo the poems for Car ads. You know, generally I was in support of all the UAW workers going on strike, but now I'm thinking I could, I could, as long as I don't tell them this is all AI generated, I might be able to make myself some money. All right. That is it. You, you, did, you got four out of five. That I think is the second best anyone's done so far. Woo-hoo. So I know you were very anxious about this. <laughs> thank you so much for being here. Is there anything you want to say or plug? Oh, just thank you so much, Charlie, for having me. I'm really enjoying this podcast. Oh, um, thank you. I can't wait to keep listening to see who's up next. All right. I won't tell you. I'll tell you they're in our building. Thanks so much for listening to everybody. As always, have a good day. Go read some poems, pet some dogs, and support striking workers wherever you find them. Bye.